Mark and Bands, and welcome to Emmaus Way. My name is Ben. We're glad you're here. So one thing we do very early on in each service um, is to go to our kids for our community song, and we've got a new one tonight we'll be introducing. But I guess, you know, we wanted to make a small announcement of the fact, I don't know all the details here, so I'm going to punt it to, apparently, our kids' teacher, Paterfamilius Joel, is also a new Paterfamilius to a young baby. So, Joel, will you tell us about that news? Uh, So, on Tuesday, um, my wife, Mallory, had our uh, second son, Titus Robert. Titus Robert Musser. Which makes Leo a big boy, a big brother, right? Yeah. And uh, he is uh, seven pounds, seven ounces, uh, Ten and a half inches, I think, is the measurements. So he's he was a little bit early, actually. So which is why we were at the hospital a little bit long. But he's very healthy, and so is mom. And um, so we're very happy and very tired. So thanks, Joe. We're so excited for you, and yeah, just excited about all the 
Joel has been someone who's really, really, over the last several years, thrown into our kids' ministry and, um, yeah, just built it into a new and different sort of thing, and that's been great. One of the things we've done with that is this community song, which it sort of changes by the season. With the liturgical season, we'll pick up a different one. So we're starting a new series today about justice, um, and you'll hear much more about that from Tim tonight. But we thought, you know, that being the case, um, this song, which we've done a couple of times, is like a big people song, but is actually off a kid's album. Um, a group called Rain for Roots in Nashville has done a couple of kids' albums, and this was on there. So I'm going to pseudo-introduce this, but we're going to sing it through three times, and you're welcome to start singing at any point during it. Okay, so. And kids, you should know this a little bit, so please help us. Open up our ears to listen. Open up our eyes to see. Plant the seed of understanding. Grow it up like the tallest tree. Thank you guys. And we'll enjoy that the next four or five weeks as we're talking about justice. And this is all leading into Lent, which I think starts somewhere in the middle of the February. Well, thank you kids for your help with that. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Amos. <laughs> so. Welcome again. If you're new to our community, we often like to describe ourselves as a community that's been captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're trying to live that out in our life together here as a gathered community on Sundays, in all sorts of ways during the week as we run into each other in our lives, and then in all sorts of ways in our broader community of Durham, um, whether that be work or justice work through missional partnerships or just, just sharing life with others. Um, we're looking for ways that God is already at work and how we might join into that. So, obviously, that'll have a lot of intersection with the series we're about to pick up. But, um, yeah, if you're relatively new to us, you want to get to know more about Emmaus Way, who are we, what are we about, how do you get connected, a couple of things that you can do. Um, on that table over in the foyer, there's both a yellow card, which will allow you to give information to us. You can give us your email address. We have a couple of listservs that you can get on. you get information. Um, some information about what happens in this gathering or like a social listserv. There's also a green card that gives you a lot of information about us, staff and leadership contacts, um, ways to get involved, missional partnerships, volunteer rotations. There's all sorts of those things um, that are available either out there. You can also check out our website or just talk to somebody afterwards. We love to get people as connected as they'd like to be. Um, this is also a time we do sort of other general announcements, and I don't have anything really specific, but does anybody have anything that I don't know about? Is there any Durham can stuff coming up? Or? Well, can you say anything about minister's liturgy? Can you know it's- That's one that somebody should talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Molly. things you're going to try to be about and people um, these are the this is the 
That's a commitment. And that link takes you to our website where that's posted. Uh, yeah, something that I think, yeah, for five, so, as long as I've been here, um, it's been sort of a, a regular ritual that we do together, but also just a way to identify um, belonging with our community for those that, that want to do that. Um, anything else? That was an important one that I was not thinking of. Okay, so I'm going to invite Mark and the band back. This is our lead artist, Mark Williams, and we've got friends Dan Hall and Casey Toll here with us. Um, I'm sure Mark will talk some about this, but yeah, these are great songs of preparation, I think, to get us starting to think about the notion of justice um, and about, yeah, some different angles and frames to think about that. Yeah, when I was thinking about the topic, uh, not just for the week, but um, the topic for this whole series kind of going forward, I was trying to think about um, the thing that, that was striking to me, I guess, is that um, we can sometimes talk about justice as sort of this disembodied um, sort of objective thing rather than um, letting it be contextual. I, I think that understanding justice in a contextual sense by not ignoring uh, stories of individuals, um, that, that somehow there's something inextricably linked between justice and the stories of individuals. So this next batch of like three songs are sort of going to invite us into different stories of people um, to try to see and understand what justice, um, what societal uh, expectations or structures around uh, people and individuals might sort of bring to the table as we think about justice together. Guide when it's you, 
easy to swallow It sticks in the throat She gave her heart to the man in the long black coat There are no mistakes in life Some people say It is true sometimes There's a long uh, tradition in uh, folk music of writing songs about people who uh, have committed a crime. Um, it's, it's always a man that has committed a crime who's either um, going to prison or the authorities are after him uh, and he's trying to sort of uh, find closure to a relationship uh, on his way there or on his sort of flee from justice or uh, from his sort of interaction with whatever the societal structures are that are bringing judgment on him. And that's kind of what this song's about. And I should say, too, this song is by a good friend of mine, a guy named Eric Peters. Uh, if you like this song, I, I recommend checking him out, ericpeters.net. <coughs> He's a great songwriter um, and a wonderful human being. Just too much. 
because of Jesus, he forgives me of my wrongs. Yeah, he forgives me of all my wrongs. Every sheet music for Dan tonight. Didn't realize we were still still playing. I'll poke fun at myself too tonight since I'm poking fun at Dan. I have entirely too many guitars up here tonight. Let's just address that for a second. I'm not even going to use one of them. They're just, just here. I thought I was going to use it though, to be fair. I thought I was going to use that. I changed my mind.
to what I felt I was unrecognizable to myself I saw my reflection in a window Didn't know my own face Oh brother, you're gonna leave me Wasting away on the streets of So it's good to see everybody again. I know a lot of you have just slipped back in the last week or two from travel. So it's a delight to kind of be back and be Emmaus Way and to welcome those of you who are new and just to be our community again. So it's a delight to see you. Uh, Mark uh, Williams does a phenomenal job uh, with crafting stories around the dialogue and he's a part of a group of us that meet on Monday nights and we talk about what we're going to do and it, and and it's still a hard job but uh but but he does it so well and I have to confess that tonight Mark had absolutely not any idea what text we were going to do, uh, but he still did it. Uh, so that's you, Mark. Uh, we're going to talk tonight as we get to it about a constellation of human pain and various actors around that pain. 
perpetrators, people of power, victims, a whole range of those things. And it struck me as we were working our way through the, uh, really the, the stories that you told in music. We were, we were, we greeted all of those characters tonight. And so, uh, in fact, as we begin talking about this, feel free to look at your lyrics again and think about those, uh, uh, those persons that we kind of met in the music tonight. They're going to come up in this dialogue on Jeremiah 22 tonight. But anyway, before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity to stand up and greet the people that are around you, offer them the peace of Christ if you would like. It's also a good chance to get some coffee or snacks or anything back there and, uh, and to greet each other. And I'll give us a shout in a few moments and we'll jump into the dialogue. So please stand and greet each other. So before we jump into uh, kind of reading and interpreting text together, uh, I'll have maybe employ you guys to uh, interpret a gift for me. Uh, so this week at... Um, uh, my first week back in school, uh, I was kind of in graduate student mode, which means that my advisor was uh, receiving a delegation of scholars and graduate students from Thailand. And so, uh, so that, you know, what that means is if your advisor's doing that, that means you get to drive around for three or four days. So I had this lovely experience of driving all over uh, the, the triangle area with these new friends from Thailand, but very graciously at the, uh, at the end of their visit, Visit, they bestowed these wonderful gifts on us. And so I was with two of my colleagues, Allison and Summer. Summer's been through Emmaus Way once before. Um, and so they, they gave Allison this beautiful scarf and they looked at her and they said, pretty <laughs> and gave her the scarf. <laughs> and so I mean, that made sense. And they sat beside Summer and they said, um, smart and strong and gave her a scarf and so um, my scarf has these elephants on it. And so they looked at me and they said, elephant. And, then, and there wasn't like I was looking for some elaboration, you know, maybe another sentence, uh, another, you know, a couple adjectives in there, but just simply elephant. So if you, if you can figure that out, let me know. I'll be glad to, to hear your, your thoughts on that. Um, now, so how many people are just getting back from some sort of holiday travel like this week? A few of you? Yeah. How many people had, anybody have, I mentioned this last week, but I do want to mention it again. The, anybody have like an awkward family meal? over like what like a discussion that got too serious among the family? Was it, what was, what was the subject? Was it politics? Religion? Politics. Was politics? Both, uh, and I know you know. I know a lot of you, and I know your family. So I, I know that you know the holiday meals have lots of fun with that. We do the same. Um, we had one meal in particular where we had a. a a very uh, liberal-leaning parent, and, and on pretty much on that side of the family, politics functions as the religion. So it, it functions as that kind of divining characteristic that decides who you are and what you are with um, Tea Party um, child. You know, and so you're going in, you know, you got Tea Party, you got, you know, Bernie on one side, you, you know, you got Rand Paul on the other, you're, you know, you're kind of going, you know, 
let's find something pleasant to talk about. And, and you, usually you, you can imagine, right, that that would be normal. To, but, but every conversation that we brought up with this desire to be not in kind of simple platitude world kept turning its way back to these kind of political conversations. And I remember just Mimi and I looking at each other going, how do we keep getting there? I mean, we're trying to, can we, we're trying to about talk something else, but we inevitably got into conversations where you felt that nervousness. And, and you wonder, I, I mean, is there, if you're thinking of life as Venn diagrams of the really important things, and I wonder if there really is a subset that involves kind of polite conversation and authentic subjects of the world that we live in. And, and, and if that polite conversation has some meaning to it, I, I don't know. It's very, very difficult. So I'm with you. If you had one of those conversations or one of those dinners or had to do one of those explanations over the holidays, we were with you. Um, just to think about this a little bit, let's talk a little bit about um, the divisions of the world that we live in. Because obviously we're in a campaign year. So you're all about to be barraged even more so than, than the last year and a half with political conversations. The poll that happened at noon that corrects the poll that happened at 9 a.m. Uh, you're going to hear every little nuance, every little political nuance. And we're going to see in vivid color a dramatic division that's a part of our society. Uh, images this week, if you were watching the news, of, of many, many images of, of that division. Division, uh, But I think it would be fair to say that the level of division that we face just politically and socially in the world that we live in is, is, is emblematic of Christianity. There's tremendous amounts of, of division in Christianity. In fact, I like to remember like just 100 years ago or 115 years ago, and I don't know, somebody, does anybody know when the magazine Christian Century began? Uh, seems like an auspicious way to name a magazine, the Christian Century, right? But, it, you know, circa 1900, somebody was sitting around going, what is going to characterize life in America in the, in the 1900s? And somebody said, well, that's easy. It's going to be kind of a galvanized, unified Christian century where Christian values are played out in building a better society. Now, if somebody did indeed say that, and I didn't look this up in, in 1900, they would have been about 15 years before the, the Scopes monkey trial and Darwinism and the Depression and two world wars. But that was the imagination just 100 and 115 years ago. A sociologist that I, that, that I read sometimes, Robert Wuthner, now, this would have been talking about a religiously, particularly Protestant America in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s came on to say, you know, now we live in a world where there isn't a Christian century, but at least it's simplified by the fact that there's really only two working denominations in America. And those denominations are the liberal denomination and the conservative denomination. And literally, if, if you're as old as me, you would have seen that played out time Time and time and time again, you interview a candidate for a job or somebody has a social program and they want help for something like that. And they come to speak to a church and inevitably the, the bin in the community might say, well, where did you go to school? And, and the next answer would describe which denomination you were in. And if you answered the wrong denomination, then you might be politely sent away. I have a friend who was on the conservative side of things that invited a local Durham pastor to his home one night. He just started attending the church for about, you know, 
four, five, six weeks. So they invited the pastor to dinner. The pastor came over. This friend would have been on the conservative side. The pastor on the, the, uh, the liberal side of things. And, and this friend had been to seminary. The pastor went into his study and looked at his books on, on, the, on, the, uh, on the, uh, the wall there. And he said, you know, I realize you're in the other denomination. I mean, you're probably attending the wrong church here, but I think they would love you at Black Knoll. In fact, I'll be willing to call them up and say, you're coming on over. So that's kind of, we went from a Christian century to kind of a two-denomination America, conservative or liberal, at least for Protestants. Um, But then we've gotten to this world that we live in now, where in some ways it's more than just a couple of denominations. When you hear people, and you guys know I'm kind of a a junkie about this. I don't know why, but inevitably tonight at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, I will probably drift just as some decompression from Sunday to some religious broadcasting. Uh, the, The better, the farther away it is from me. So I can just look and commentate on the television and just have this little monologue with myself. And no matter what channel I find, there's going to probably be a decidedly different narrative of what really Christianity is. Like, for example, just for fun, uh, what we're all stereotyping here. What would be some big narratives of Christianity that might be kind of the way that people organize their thoughts about God and what we do about God? Because I'm suggesting that these stories barely overlap anymore. Give me a couple ideas. What would be a kind of a theological narrative that, that, would, be a, that would form kind of a type or brand of Christianity. Does that question make? Oh, yeah, Christine. So good to see you back, Christine. I've missed you. I was away for like a month and a half. Anyway, um, America was, was a Christian nation, and we were founded to follow Jesus, and the reason we're wealthy is that we've been blessed because, you know, God blessed us because we were a Christian nation. Some people think that, and other people are like, and now, and now we're not anymore, and so we're in a bad situation. That might be sort of this narrative of U.S. being originally Christian. Yeah, so that's a real, let's call that one the restoration narrative. There was a time when our nation was a Christian camp meeting. And when somebody says that, they mean a certain form of Christian camp meeting. But everybody agreed with that. And the blessings that we have, the wealth, all those things are a result of that camp meeting. And we're getting away from it. And if we don't get back to it, there's stuff coming that's not going to be good. That's certainly, that's a big Christian narrative. I grew up in a family like that. I get, uh, well, I have relatives that probably still send me VCR tapes <laughs> with, with stuff on that. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with a VCR tape. What's another narrative? A kind of a big narrative. Yeah, Gail. Um, God wants you to be rich, happy, and live forever. So there's also, there's another one that's this kind of prosperity narrative. If we are intimate with God and God's wisdom, it will be represented in personal prosperity, right? Our friend Kate Bowler, uh, who we love and adore at Duke Divinity, is kind of one of the preeminent researchers on the, uh, on the prosperity gospel in America. And it's gigantic. And you can find it deeply represented in our community and the wider culture. Yes, absolutely. That's a couple. Um, I don't have a list, but anybody think of another one? Uh, yeah, Jordan. Sin is personal or sin is communal? I, I missed the first sentence. Sin is personal or sin is communal? 
Okay, so that's two stories. That sin is something like maybe what we talked about here last year, this kind of collective freezing in our relationship, or something deeply personal that might be identified by something that you are doing. Jordan, on the personal sin narrative, um, what, what's, what, what bigger story? What do you do about that if you come to that realization? That's where you turn out to, I'm thinking just what is the exoneration point, whether priest or personal, um, personal prayer or through priest. Right, you need some sort of personal exoneration, right? If it's personal, then you need to do something about it. And that's a strong, I'm not trying to, to knock that narrative, that's a strong narrative. And, and you identify that there's another one that looks at what's broken in the world much more collectively. Sure. And those involve two entirely different solutions, action points, all sorts of things. Excellent. Anybody else? Yeah, fire away. Your salvation is dependent upon your uh, adherence to an outline of points that goes A, Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two. And if you don't know the details in the Greek grammar of that, then you're excluded from salvation. You're not talking from experience here in any way, Brian. <laughs> so I have a friend who's a seminarian who would have probably been to a school sort of like that, right? And this was 15 years ago, and he had an assignment, and his assignment was to come and sit down with a, a pastor, because a pastor would know this, right, uh, and, and, and share the gospel with me. And, and I was given a checklist of 17 points that he needed to do and, and an honor pledge. And for each point, I made a check. And, and if he missed a point, then what's 17 into 100? He lost like six or six and a half points per missed thing, right? And so I sat there and he went through the gospel and I checked off stuff. And there was a text for each one. And I think I could give him bonus points if he cited, you know, that sort of thing. But at the end of that conversation, I was left thinking, Oh, I can think of a lot of stuff that I might call gospel that wasn't on the checklist of 17. And, and you know, we chuckled about it afterwards because he, he knew I was going to say that. So we live, we live in a world that's not just politically divided, but, and there's overlap, obviously. The political divisions that we see are deeply entrenched in religious differences to the point of where we don't talk about Christianity maybe anymore as different denominations, kind of a different way of doing the same thing. I think we've reached the point where we're talking about entirely different stories in Christian communities. And I think you could kind of travel around church life in Durham today, next week, and probably find decidedly different stories. Those different stories, I would suggest to you, are highly related to the notion of justice. Um, Jordan, you got at this a little bit, you know, making things right, whether you're making things right personally or making things right corporately, but this whole idea of justice. And, and I should say this, as, as Molly and I get ready to start talking about justice for the next four weeks, um, we understand that that word itself does not have a single definition. For example, I'll give you, give you a couple examples on this. For one, like in school, in, in my research in cultural studies, we talk a lot about the difference between equity and equality. And, and, and you might kind of go, those sound like synonyms, but we tend to use those very, very technically. For example, um, 
Um, when we talk about equity, we're often talking about the fair distribution of things in the world that might matter to somebody. And that might be something tangible, something non-tangible. And talking about removing systemic barriers to people living comfortably and equitably in the world that we live in. So it's a very systemic word. And a lot of times people who talk about equality are thinking more individualistically. Equality being this idea that do individuals, does Jenny, does Jamie, does Amanda, regardless of who you are, do you have the opportunity to rise above your circumstances regardless of what those circumstances are? So even in justice conversation, you might have people talking about equity, structural boundaries, the distribution of things in the world, or people talking about equality. Does Brian have the opportunity to rise above whatever he needs to rise above? And whether that's attending a class, going to school, working harder, doing those things, those are two entirely different understandings of justice. And if you were to ask the question, what do you think about justice in lots of Christian settings, you would find all kinds of answers from things like justice is the type of thing that you do with or for people so that they can hear the gospel. Or you might hear an answer like this, for people who have heard the gospel and are committed to the gospel, justice might be one of the things they might do as a response to having heard the gospel. And then you might hear somebody say, actually, both of those things miss the point. Justice is inherently entrenched in this understanding of what we call gospel. So lots of differences, lots of stories of Christianity, lots of different stories about what justice might be. So here's what we're going to try to do in this series. We want to talk about this division that can happen so easily in Christian community where justice can in some ways be at times separated from what people call gospel. Good news, the good stuff, uh, stuff we talk about, and then there's justice. And we're going to ask the question, is this division theologically supportable? It particularly is in this case, for the next three or four weeks, uh, Molly and I are going to be in Old Testament uh, text. It, are these, is that division biblically supportable? And what we'd like to do is look at some of the Old Testament kind of theological roots to what Jesus called his gospel and raise some questions like this. What were the expectations that people had of the Messiah? We talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago in Advent when we looked at Mary's song and Mary's reaction to her perception of what the Messiah would be. And we're going to also talk about what was the vision of Yahweh? What was the vision of the God of Israel and what was supposed to to be fulfilled or come to fruition in the coming of Jesus, and certainly what is the gospel that Jesus forms in his ministry and teaches in his teaching life. And of course, all of those are really big questions. I would recommend none of them for holiday table talk, Uh, but we're going to try to jump at them a little bit and talk about, can you talk about justice apart from from the gospel itself. Let's look at a text now. Uh, On your sheet there, um, let's look at Jeremiah 22. Would somebody be willing to read those nine verses, one through five and 13 to 16 for me? Uh, Hold off on the Ezekiel one. Just read the Jeremiah. Oh, sure, go. Thus says the Lord. 
Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, sitting on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, Act with justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then through the gates of this house shall enter kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not heed these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Keep going? Yes. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors work for nothing, and does not give them their wages, who says, I will build myself a spacious house with large upper rooms, and who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion, Are you a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, says the Lord? Thanks, Jim. So let's let's paint a little bit of this scene. Um, We've got a few characters here. We've got the prophet... Jeremiah engaging the king. And um, the context is this. Um, This is in Judah, or the north kingdom of Israel. This is the one that... um, was the kingdom that lasts the longest, was in the description of the scriptures, more faithful for a while. And they are a few generations removed from Josiah, who was known as the reformer, but was a king who took very seriously the covenant um, acts of justice and reformed Israel around that covenant. Now, after Josiah's untimely death, he died young, reigned not a long time. There was largely a parade of pretenders and oppressors on the throne who had cast aside really all of Josiah's reforms related to justice, equity, all of those things. And as a result, Israel has developed a vast inequity, a huge division between the rulers and the elite and the rest of the people. Now, here's just a few actors here. A prophet is a job you never want to go for. Even if you're a job search, you stay away from that one because this is what prophets were deigned to do. They were truth tellers. No one likes truth tellers. But their job was to see the world from the perspectives of a cultural reality. In other words, to see what was really there, what was really going on, and then also to look at that reality and compare it with the covenant that Yahweh had made with the people of Israel. They are the brokers in some ways of that covenant. They are mouthpieces of God to human power. So they didn't just write irky, 
bothersome blogs. They had to actually take their text and go to the people of power. So if they were mad at Bill Bell, they made an appointment with Bill Bell, walked in alone with no one around them that made anybody think they had any power whatsoever, and they told the truth. That's what they did. And they had this theological assumption that is quite uncomfortable. One that human rulers... And human kingdom, human kingdoms are never absolute. They are subject to the grace and judgment of an absolute throne, the throne of the one God, Yahweh. So they went to political powers and said, you're not really the power. There's another power. And let's talk about how you're doing. Not a good job. Second job here is the king. And as we're reading here, we're reading a dialogue between the prophet doing prophet stuff with the king. Um, so based on the text in front of you, what is the job of the king? Jeremiah is going to appeal to this king about that job. What is the job description of the king? To judge between the poor and the rich and to give justice. So to give justice? Yeah, absolutely. To see the world that's in there. Yeah, perfect. What else? Protect the vulnerable So protect people who are vulnerable. Because vulnerable people, by definition, can't protect themselves. And what is it about vulnerable people? Do they often ask for help? No, they probably never even get to a point of where they can make their case. So if, Gail, your job is to protect the vulnerable, what does that mean for you, really? Well, I think it means acting unselfishly in ways that are in in their best interest, not my best interest. And standing up against the people that want to um, take advantage of them. Absolutely. And as you said, it might involve some really proactive looking at the world as it is. Many of you have careers and professions and things that are deeply influenced by that. And, and so you, you have to do that. You have to look at the context we're in and say, how can I speak or organize people who don't get to speak to the structures and the powers of the, of the world that we live in? So that's exactly what Brian is saying, what Gail's saying. That's what the king did. That was the king's role. Um, a, a couple of Hebrew words that kind of uh, grab this idea is uh, there. You might say their job description was mishpat sedekah. Mishpat is appropriate, generous judgment. Uh, we get the kind of the root of that word are acts of kindness, acts of generosity, all of those things. So kings were supposed to make appropriate, generous judgment. Regardless if I'm trying to decide between Christine and Mark, and Mark has laid a couple of big bills on me, I still have to make appropriate judgment. And that judgment was made on the basis of sedekah, which is righteous justice. That's why this question of justice is so absolutely essential. That's what the king was to do, is to make appropriate judgments based on justice in society. And the way the prophet talks to him is the way it's going to go in Israel, because Israel's not the ultimate throne, nor is Assyria, but Yahweh is, is how well the king does, in this case, his job. Now let's talk about the poor. The third actor in this. Who are the poor and the vulnerable? Well, we can start with the aliens. Aliens, yes. Who else? Orphans. The orphans, yes. The, def- the defrauded, the aliens, immigrants. Anybody else? 
common terms. Widows, and, and who are aliens, widows, immigrants? What do they have in common? All of that, that list of people, the defrauded. They have no power. They're not able to speak for themselves. What else? No land. So that's, they, they lack any ability to kind of generate ongoing income. If you don't have land, then you're at the mercy of an employer, right? Who has land? So they, they don't have the power. They don't have the ability to generate income. Anything else? Belonging. I'm sorry, Lauren. Belonging. Yeah. That actually may be the worst thing about them. In a patriarchal system... What you have is based on what you belong to. Uh, one friend of mine, uh, Rodney Sadler, who we may hear from today, um, is an Old Testament theologian, would say, when you hear those terms, think about husbandless mothers and fatherless children, people who are at the mercy of the system, those without an adult, an indigenous adult Judaic male to protect them. In that patriarchy, without that, they had no protection. And so the king's job was to protect them, to fill in the gap. Now, what's interesting about that? The king's job is to take care of the poor. I'll fill in the blank on this one. There's an interesting assumption there, isn't it? The assumption is that there will be poor. That poor in the world that we live in, based on who we are, we're always going to be taking advantage of each other if we can. I'm looking at the Jakeses thinking, mm, there's something I could get from those guys. If I could just maneuver, get some Lenovo stock from Phil or do something that I can, something that puts me ahead. We are generally and constantly generating the poor. So the poor, who said this? The poor might always be with us. Some person said that, uh, but, but, but they're with us. And so we, we live in a world with what do we do with the poor? Hide them. We, we hide them, we scapegoat them, we stigmatize them. What is wrong with the poor? They're inconvenient. They're inconvenient. They're also the deserving victims of their own character flaws. If they would just get their act together, they wouldn't be poor, right? And so a lot of, and I'm not talking about the current kind of regime uh, uh, in any way over the last really hundred years, if you would read cultural and intellectual and political thought, you would see a tremendous move over the last decades toward this idea that people who lack something lack the biopower, they lack the capability, they lack the wisdom to do the very things that they need to do. And they're the last people you want to be around, people who lack those things. But in Interestingly, in the Old Testament, they're not vilified. They're treated as a constant that must be cared for. So the king becomes their protector, the one who fills the void of an absent husband, father, kinsman, or employer. That was how the king was judged. So what did the king do? I would suggest to you that the kings, except for a few, constantly committed sodomy. They were sodomists. That makes perfect sense, right? Next point. So let's get to that word sodom, sodomy. Uh, you got, if you've read the Bible, you know the background, right? 
Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were the two worst cities, so bad that no matter what you did, no matter what Will's thinking of right now, it wasn't as bad as what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, and that term was used biblically, like if you watch television newscast, liberal or conservative tomorrow, somebody's going to be, be compared to being a Nazi, right? And that, that Nazi is this emblematic archetype of evil place people in government. And Sodom and Gomorrah are kind of the, the biblical version of that. Now, we, we, you know, if you've read this story, we know that, that often the term sodomy is associated with some sort of sexual, and I put in quotation marks, perversion based on the story of Lot and, and, and his treatment and the sexual demands that were made on him or sisters and all the people that were there. Interestingly, I won't go into this, but it'd be a really fun talk. Um, if you've read um, uh, like Dale Martin, wonderful uh, theologian from Yale, he has a fantastic book that talks about uh, the sexual perversions of the world that we live in, and they've changed so incredibly. But um, uh, the culture that we live in likes to kind of limit sexual perversion to like one or two things that we can really, really focus on and ignore all the others. And for fun afterwards, if you want to ask me what was the real perversion in the Greco-Roman world, you will be very interested in the answer to that. I will not say it now. Uh, but, so, but that's what we associate with sodomy. Um, and, and, so, and, and we see this difference here, is, and, and we tend to read the Bible with a very modern lens toward things, particularly an individualistic lens that, that what Jordan was talking to that said, oh, if people are doing that stuff, it's something personal people are doing and they shouldn't be doing it because it's really, really bad. But here's an interesting question. What was sodomy to the sodomites? If they were accused of being sodomist, what would it be? Uh, somebody give me a quick read of Ezekiel uh, 16, 48 through 50. This is talking about naughty cities in the ancient world. None as bad as. Somebody give me a read. As I live, says the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. And then also there was some sexual stuff. No, it's not there. Uh, but so what was the sin of Sodom? They did the worst thing possible in the ancient Near Eastern world. They practiced inhospitality. They were inhospitable people. They looked at the vulnerable and thought, what can we get from them? Economically, materially, physically, in every way. Sodomy and the reason that these cities were destroyed is because they made it a patent practice to prey upon the people who could not protect themselves. So what really is the gospel? If we're looking at this text, this intense text, where the king of Israel, the representative of God, is being told, this is what you do. 
Um, if we have a chance, I'm going to take, uh, I think we just have one song list. We're going to try to do like a, uh, this is a friend of mine, Rodney Sadler, preaching on this. Rodney's a uh, theologian down at Union uh, uh, Seminary in Charlotte. Fantastic. Uh, this is an address given in the context of, I heard it in terms of research and uh, Moral Monday stuff. Um, you'll hear some strong words on capitalism. You can process that any way that you want to. Uh, uh, you, you know, there's obviously the Josh, uh, the Josh Busman, Tim Condor version of that. You can have your own as well. But listen to, to Rodney's description of what the gospel is based on this text. Ben, you think we can play it? For creating a scenario where people are working for less than a living wage. Amen. Sound familiar? This is done to ensure that the wealthy are fully able to live in an exploited opulence using the suffering of the poor to facilitate their luxuriant lives. I've often thought of our capitalist system that it is not by mistake that people are poor. It is not a result of a general failure of the system to work right or even the moral character failings of the poor. It is a result of the system doing just what the system was intended and designed to do. It needs a capital class of the poor who are underprivileged, undervalued, underappreciated, who will work under the table and be underpaid, so that the comfortable class can afford to live luxuriously off of their labor. Our system needs the poor, feeds off the poor, feeds on the poor, and then blames them for their status on the bottom rung of the economy as the wealthy benefit unduly from their disadvantage. I think it's also why we have a wealthy class so concerned for charity. Charity offers the wealthy the opportunity to assuage their guilt by giving back to the poor what they will from their excess. Well, what if we maintain the system just as it is? The poor are temporarily sustained for uh, that for that they should be somewhat grateful for the generosity of the dominant classes. But their status is that their circumstances continue to remain unchanged. What God calls for is setting, mishpat, righteous justice, just judgment, not a system that is perpetuating charity. God calls for practices that mean suffering, not just offer temporary alleviation while maintaining an unjust status quo. Point for application. The call of the prophet is upon us today. I think we cannot look at our system and fail to realize that we are living in the world that Jeremiah denounced. It is a world where the poor are intentionally exploited, workers are underpaid, single mothers, fatherless children, and immigrants are abused and ignored, oppression is rampant, and the people are defrauded. And yet the church is largely silent. The church is silent because we have forgotten the charge of the Lord is not a charge to have good worship, not to preach the people happy, not to maintain the roles of the church, not to sing get happy songs, not to preach the people rich, not to focus exclusively on those within the four walls of any given sanctuary. The Lord has called us to go down to the king's house and remind the king to do justice. That is the task given to Jeremiah here, and I think that is largely the job that all of us have as those who have been called by God. Instead of us thinking of this as extraneous, as above and beyond, 
something we might get to after we've taken care of all the other business of the church. Perhaps we should realize that this is what the Lord has called us to do. This is not an added obligation for some. This is a challenge for all of us called to ministry. It is not ancillary to the gospel message. This is the heart of the message of the Hebrew Bible. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. <coughs> a little bit challenging to understand, but one of the things that Rodney said so powerfully is this is the gospel. The command of the king was the command to us. And notice how radical the gospel is. It's not doing good things that leave a system intact, but literally envisioning an entirely different world. And of course, when we use those really intense words like kingdom, that's what we're talking about in gospel, even if we've tamed it in many ways. Um, so to those who would say the gospel is about knowing, just knowing God personally, receiving the salvation of God as an intimate companion of God, I would ask the question, how do we really know God? This is a question that Jeremiah answers in this text. Let's read those words one more time. Are you a king because you compete in cedar, meaning you are part of the wealthy structure that produces wealth for you? No. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? That's what made him a king. Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. And then here's the clincher. Is, this, is not this to know me, says the Lord? The quote here being, this is how you know me. By doing these things. Molly and I look forward to talking more about some theological ideas of what does this justice look like and what does it look like for people like us who are trying to live into the vision of that kingdom. Thanks, Mark. So I've chosen for, for this last song to be both a confession and an absolution. Usually we have, you know, separate songs for that. But this week it... It felt to me like we needed three songs of preparation for one thing, but it also felt like this song, this song also to me skates this sort of middle ground of, you know, look at the first verse. May every word be spoken, every truth be told, may every promise be unbroken, and every gift turned into gold. I think of that, and it's like that—that that is this wonderful uh, promise, you know, uh, but it's also it's also a conviction uh, at the same time, right? I mean, there's what what responsibility do I have uh, in making sure that that words are spoken and promises are unbroken? Uh, what what responsibility do I have in that? So, uh, to me, this song has elements of of both of these uh, wonderful ideas of both confession and absolution.
broken and every gift turned into gold let there be mercy 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 let there be mercy 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 May every curse be broken
Thank you so much for the music and for that song of confession and absolution. As I was sitting here listening to Tim, um, I'm a J, so I kind of had something written out in a big planner. But as I was sitting here listening to him, I couldn't help but remember, (laughs) this is bad, the only sermon I ever remember the pastor of my childhood through really college preach. That's kind of bad. I only remember one out of, I don't know, like 15 years he was my pastor. Um, And he just retired, but I remember he was speaking about justice and actually about this passage. And he said, what if we actually believed this to be true and we acted on it? And then he said... I know you young people think that you are going to be able to act on this and live as people of justice for the rest of your life, but every decade that passes, it gets harder and harder and harder. And so I'm asking you, please believe that it's true and act on it every day. It's the only thing I remember Jean saying. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how the table for me and maybe for you, is a time of remembrance. But for me, it's a time of remembrance of where we can come and, yeah, really remember that justice is at the heart of it all. And it's where we can come, and when we serve each other bread and wine, it's kind of like we're saying, what if we believe this is true? And what if we leave the table and actually act on it? And so I guess as we come to the table throughout this month, I encourage each of us um, to really think, what if we believe this is true? How might our lives and way of being and way of being community be transformed? I don't know, but I'm excited to be on the journey with you all. So please come to the table, share bread and wine. For those that are new, um, we serve one another. And so the wine is in the smaller carafe, and then the grape juice is in the darker green, and there is a gluten-free option. But let us come. Wow.